Hey everyone, it's Mike Wong. You're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today we are responding to episode 6 of Star Trek Discovery's third season, titled Scavengers. As always, think, feel, and question. Think. What would the black box tell us about the burn? Since it has a record of any ship's last moments, every vessel destroyed by the burn should have stopped recording at the same microsecond, but the two that I found in my ear here didn't. If both found a third one out there, and it shows the same variance, that means the burn didn't happen all at once. Suggesting what? Suggesting the bird had a point of origin. And we can triangulate the data from the boxes to locate it. We have got to get to Hunnell. In this episode, we learn that Burnham and Book have been looking for the black boxes of starships that went kaboom during the burn. Burnham tells Saru that she and Book have found two of those black boxes so far, which revealed something odd that the burn didn't happen all at once everywhere in space. Instead, the burn seems to have traveled like a shockwave, interrupting the warp drives of starships as it passed through them and propagated across the galaxy. At least, this is Michael's hypothesis, and Michael tells Saru that if she finds a third black box, she can use the temporal variance to triangulate the location that the burn originated from. There are a few important assumptions baked into this reasoning. Number one, you are assuming one unique origin for the burn, but for all we know, there could have been multiple flashpoints. Just think of the seven simultaneous red bursts from last season. Number two, you're assuming that the burn shockwave radiates uniformly through space at a constant speed, say at the speed of light. If it didn't, then you'd be led astray by Burnham's proposed analysis. But for the sake of argument, let's say that Burnham's assumptions are true. Then the plan sounds great, right? Well, not so fast. There is just one problem, and that is three black boxes aren't quite enough. To pinpoint a location in the volume of space using this method, you'd actually need at least four black boxes. It's kind of hard to explain why on a podcast without being able to draw things, but let me try anyway. For those of you who like algebra, the reasoning can be put like this. Space is three-dimensional, plus one more dimension, time. So that's four dimensions, which translates into four unknown quantities, the x, y, and z coordinates of the burn's origin, as well as the time that the burn actually occurred at its point of origin. Four unknowns require four data points to solve for a unique solution. Okay, well if you're not an algebra buff, let's say you're more of a geometry person. Let's try thinking of things like this. For each starship black box that you have, you can draw a sphere around that location of that black box whose surface represents all possible locations where the burn could have traveled from in a given amount of time to destroy that ship. Now, it's not very useful if you just have one black box, right? Because given that amount of information, the burn could have literally come from anywhere any when in the past. 
But if you have more than one black box, and you know the relative timing of the burn's influence on those different black boxes, you can draw multiple spheres in space, each sphere centered upon each of the black boxes, and those spheres will intersect each other. The more spheres, the more dimensions you get to knock off until you just have one last point that falls on the surface of all of your spheres. That'll happen when you've got four spheres and that point of mutual intersection will localize the origin of the burn in space and in time. Okay, so I wanna be clear, I didn't point this out, just to be that trekky, you know, the guy who screams, galaxy-class ships are 641 meters long, not 643 meters long. Sheesh! And I know, right now, it seems like I'm doing the equivalent of that. Four black boxes, not three! No, this podcast has never been and never will be about nitpicking Star Trek. The reason why I point this out is because it's very related to a real-life scientific problem. How to figure out the locations in space of gravitational wave events. This is a very cutting-edge problem that has suddenly become very relevant at the forefront of astrophysics in the past couple of years. But first, let me briefly remind you about gravitational waves. These are ripples in space-time that are produced by truly cataclysmic astrophysical events, like neutron stars smashing into one another, or black holes merging. They're so powerful that they can travel across the universe and be detected right here on Earth, but only by the most sophisticated of instruments. Now, gravitational waves aren't like electromagnetic waves. You can't just open your eyes to the cosmos, see a gleaming bright light, point to it, and say, aha, there you are. No, gravitational waves travel completely hidden from our normal senses. If you're a gravitational wave observatory and you feel that gravitational wave go by, you're completely blind to what direction it came from. This is exactly like having just one black box from the burn. So how do we fix this? Well, by getting a gravitational wave-observing partner, of course. And that's why the LIGO project, humanity's first ever successful gravitational wave observatory, and the project that won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics, has not one but two observatories spaced apart by thousands of kilometers on Earth, one in Washington state and the other in Louisiana. With two observatories, not only can you double-check that what one observatory felt wasn't just an aberration, you can get a much better handle on the direction that the gravitational wave event came from. But can you know the source location completely? Well, if you think back to our whole black box burn problem, you know the answer is no. And that's why there are more gravitational wave observatories being built around the world right now. Another observatory, Virgo, came online shortly after the two LIGO observatories opened shop. Virgo is located in Italy. A fourth gravitational wave observatory, 
Kagura, built in Japan, started taking data earlier this year. And a fifth, Indigo, in India, is slated for 2024. And by their powers combined, these observatories will hopefully detect and localize many more incredible astronomical events. Luckily, even before Kagra and Indigo, the three-observatory combination of LIGO and Virgo was still able to get pretty good precision on the origins of gravitational wave events. This is because, unlike in the case of the black boxes and the burn, timing is not the only kind of information that can be measured for gravitational wave phenomena. For instance, the intensity of the gravitational wave itself and the polarization of the waves carry information too, and these can be used to further refine the probable locations of these cataclysmic events in the sky. I've put a link in the show notes to a really cool interactive sky map where you can see the locations of recent gravitational wave detections. And by toggling the settings of this map, you can see how our precision gets so much better between when you just use the LIGO data and when you combine the data from the two LIGO observatories and Virgo. Finally, for more details on gravitational wave mechanics and how LIGO works, please check out episode 80 of Strange New Worlds, where I interviewed Dr. Aaron McDonald on this very subject. All right, feel. For this episode, I thought that Linus was a ray of much-needed laughter in an otherwise pretty grim episode full of Giorgio's apparent bouts with PTSD, a slave labor mining operation, and renewed distrust between Saru and Burnham. And also, like the entire bridge crew was, I am so in love with those new comm badges, or hollow badges, tricorder badges, the all-in-one nature of those badges. Oh, I just want one. And finally, my question for this week. Now, two weeks ago, we saw the effects of the sphere data merging into Discovery's main computer, and the voice of Zora, the sentient computer from the Short Trek episode Calypso, emerged. This seemed to reaffirm the idea that the events of Calypso are still in the future. However, this week, we saw the Discovery get a full upgrade. New hull design, detached warp nacelles, programmable matter computer consoles, and a fancy A slapped onto its ship registry. I loved seeing all of these upgrades. I think the Discovery has never looked cooler. But the USS Discovery in Calypso had no such improvements. Now, I know, I know, there are a million production reasons why this is the case, chief of all being that Calypso was filmed long before season three was ever written. But still, can these inconsistencies be reconciled? Or are we going to have to learn to live with them? I haven't thought of a satisfying, straightforward way for the plot to reconcile these differences, but maybe you can. Anyway, that's my question for this week. Before I leave you, it's about to be Thanksgiving here in the United States, 
And I just wanted to say that I am truly thankful from the bottom of my heart for all of you listeners out there around the globe. Please, be safe this holiday season. Take every precaution because your life and the lives of those around you matter. As always, we are in this together. After all, that is the Starfleet way. Until next time, see you out there.